Hello and welcome to the Organic Gardening Podcast. I'm Sarah Brown and I'm joined by Chris Collins and our colleagues here at Garden Organic. We're bringing you tips about how to garden and grow the organic way. This month I'm taking you out on a farm walk. Not just any farm, but perhaps one of the best known organic farms in the country, run by the head of the Soil Association, Helen Browning. So I'm really excited about the future for organic because there is just no time to lose. In our post bag, Chris and Anton tell Hannah how to grow a successful Brussels sprout, and she gets us to choose our favourite Christmas gifts from the organic gardening catalogue. Maybe some of our suggestions will help you in your own Christmas shopping list, because of course the Organic Gardening Catalogue is our brilliant sponsor. You can check out their catalogue online at organiccatalogue.com. You'll find a complete range of organic gardening products, from seeds and plants to equipment. We found it the perfect place to look for a whole range of Christmas gifts for the gardener in your life. That's organiccatalogue.com. And don't forget, if you're a member of Garden Organic, you'll get 10% off. So now I'm off to join Chris in our winter potting shed. Good morning, Sarah. Morning, Chris. I've just come in from a lovely domestic morning cleaning up my greenhouse. I've just had such fun. You know, it's it's cold outside, but everything is looking nicely organised inside the greenhouse itself. I've, I've emptied all the pots, they're nicely cleaned out, ready for spring sewing. My tools and my trays are all sorted. I mean, call me small minded, but actually it's been such a nice morning. Yes, I love those pottery jobs. I'm kind of in my element when I'm just pottering around. You kind of do a little bit over here, a little bit over there. You wash a few pots up, you do a bit of cleaning. You just get into this little world of your own. You're out there in the fresh air, you can see your own breath because it's the winter, that crispy sort of winter beginning. Yeah, I really do love those kind of jobs. It's kind of like the pressure has gone off, hasn't it? You've taken your foot off the accelerator and you can now just enjoy being out there and, and, yes. and thinking, thinking about what worked, what didn't work. You've been down on your allotment, have you? I have, yes. I, and this, I've got, I'm doing pretty similar to you. I've, uh, I mean, obviously I've got plants in, but I'm replacing some boards on the on the individual beds. My polytunnel I'm cleaning out. It's just a pottering operation at the moment, and you've got it in one go. Totally, it's the pressure's off. You know, the pressure's on in April, May when I've got seeds and loads of seedlings on the go and stuff's growing. And now I can just look at it, enjoy, listen to the birds. I kind of really enjoy this time of year as well. And I like that fresh sort of end of autumnal, beginning of winter air as well. We had somebody, a, a listener, write in saying, um, you talk about keeping off wet soil. Can you explain that? Yes, well, you obviously, if, you're, if the soil is very damp and wet, then if you're treading on it, you're going to destroy the structure of it, basically. You destroy all those air, air spaces, the things that make up the structure of it. So I tend to, like I put in some broad beans last week um, that I propagated back at the flat, and um, I always use boards. I just put a board down so that could, I have a scaffold plank, a short scaffold plank. I put that down so my weight's distributed evenly rather than impressioning with my big old boots on parts of it. And it just protects the soil structure, basically, and means that it's aerated and the drainage can work properly. I think also it's worth bearing in mind if you're making a garden now and you're planning new beds, think about getting them the right size so you don't have to walk on them. Maybe make the beds of a suitable width so you can access them from the parts yeah. both sides of them. I think that I, the, one of the best things I did when I got the allotment was rather than, because it's a huge allotment, it's a full size one, was divide it into beds. One that helps me in my rotation, so I'm moving the crops around, but it just means I'm not, I don't ever feel overwhelmed. I can kind of manage it part by part. And it's a really good tip for anyone starting out, they've got a piece of allotment, it might be overgrown, just put it into segments and it means it feels much easier to manage. Do you know, Chris, we've got this far and we haven't mentioned Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting we haven't because I think because of all what's gone on the last sort of 18 months, uh, maybe we're looking forward to this one a bit more. I don't know. You know, there's obviously we've got more freedom. I think there are issues with it. Well, obviously, it's COVID hasn't gone away, but I think a lot of people will be with family members they've not seen for quite a while. So fingers crossed this will be less material and more about people you know the people we're close to so maybe this will be a christmas worth celebrating and i think you know obviously let's try and tie horticulture into it yeah yeah well i was going to say i'm going to give my compost heap the best christmas it's ever had <laughs> there you go <laughs> done in one sentence <laughs> well it's not difficult is it because there's so much cooking going on whether it's just 
whether it's just my husband and I, or whether any either of our boys can join us. But there's so many soups and stews and things that you make. I mean, again, it's nice indoor pottering jobs, and I cook a lot. And that means I've got a huge amount of vegetable peelings and washings and things that I can then put on the compost heap. And then there's the cardboard and there's the paper envelopes and yeah. things like that. That all kind of comes with the Christmas package, doesn't it? That'll go on the compost heap. The only thing that I won't put on, and I think it's really worth mentioning this, anything that's sort of plastic and shiny and doesn't scrumple, that's not going to rot down. And no cooked food, because there's yes. always the danger you're going to attract rats. Bring rodents in, yeah. Yeah. But otherwise, no, it's going to be a bumper Christmas for the compost. <laughs> yeah, there's always like, yeah, it's always, it's funny because it kind of fills up at the end of the growing season because obviously you're taking stuff out and and then, uh, and then so this will be the second wave. I have a, like a little hot box on the balcony and that will fill quite quickly. So I'll, I'll be walking that down the allotment to just, walk off all the food I'm going to be eating as well, I expect. Yeah, yeah. Well, no bad thing, no bad thing. I like the idea that that little hot box, so that's really good because if you don't have room for a compost bin in your yes. garden, this is the perfect answer, isn't oh, it's, it? I mean, it's only small and, and it just, think I, I'm south facing, so I struggle with a worm reef because it got a bit warm. The worms don't like it over 25 degrees and they struggle as well. Okay. So this was the perfect answer because it just, it's little, it sits in the corner and uh, and I could just then I could just transport I can carry it literally carry it. I like to walk down the allotment rather than use the car if I can and I so I walk down with it and it's got a handle and it it's just the perfect solution and I just kind of feel you're right the kitchen can produce a lot of waste that could go to waste if you're not careful so it's good to be utilising it. Mm. So what will be your Christmas plant of the month, Chris? Well, I'm going to go, I'm going to keep it festive. I'm going to go for, and this is ironic because I'm looking out my office window and there's a robin literally on the, on the windowsill <laughs> as I speak. So it's he got knows. very festival here. It's going to go for a plant called Slumbergia, which is actually a cactus. Um, it used to be originally called the Christmas cactus. Actually, oh, yeah. it's been around for a long, long time. It's got this waxy sort of, um, almost, uh, this is my imagination maybe, a bit like dreadlock sort of a, a, a form to it so it kind of multi-stemmed it flops down it has this time of year these big old sort of reddish flowers that have a that are multi-petaled and they spring back the petals they're quite long about yeah. 30 centimeters long it's a very beautiful it is incredibly resilient plant i had one and that lasted me 10 years before i moved overseas very easy to propagate you can take a couple of little section off it let it dry the leaves dry out and plant it in a gritty sort of compost, peat-free compost, and it'll root and it'll last you. I mean, it'll last you a lifetime. And you forget about it. It's one of those plants you kind of put in the corner, you water now and again. But this time of year, it just, boof, it comes to life. A very, very beautiful plant. It sounds fabulous, Chris. And I'm, I suspect a lot of households have got them. And do you know, you've inspired me to think, maybe I can take some cuttings yes. and give them as presents. <laughs> yeah, it's a good idea. Now, you will just let them dry. So you take cuttings. I mean, they, 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 when one gets big, there's a lot of uh, material to use. Just let them sit, let them dry for a couple of days. Make sure your potting compost is peat-free and full of gravel grit so you don't, it doesn't like the water sat around it. Put it in a windowsill, maybe give it a little bit of humidity with a, a bag over it and pea canes. It'll root quite quickly and then you're away. Brilliant. Lovely. I love that, Chris. Thank you. So moving on beyond Christmas, have you got any thoughts about what you're going to be doing next year? Well, I, I thought about this quite a lot, actually. My thing is, due to lockdown, we had this kind of emergence of all these new gardeners. I mean, some people give the figure three million. And I just think that it's very important that we gain that track, we keep that traction, we gain that those people that have become, become interested in it. I so I want to, on behalf of Garden Organic, get out and speak to those people. Workshops, talks. I went to um, Woolworth Community Garden at the weekend, all these new allotment holders. They're really hungry for information, knowledge, uh, how to get going. I think we need to really, really concentrate on making sure we retain those new gardeners. And I think that's um, that's a good little look ahead to the year, a good little ambition for 2022. I think that's brilliant, Chris. And sharing your knowledge and your wisdom, it's just always a, a, a great thing to do. I think I'd also like to make the point that organic is the new way to garden. I know it's based on old traditional techniques, but with all that's going on around us with climate degradation, biodiversity loss or whatever, the organic way is the modern way to garden. And that's how I like to look at it. And I think new gardeners buy into that hugely. And it's not complicated, is it? It's not difficult to do. It's enjoying watching nature, working with it, not against it. 
It's well said, and I and I think that speaking to the people I know that are now coming into wanting to are taking an interest in gardening, not one of them doesn't want to do it not non organically. They all yeah. want to be organic. And if you think about uh, Lawrence Hills, Jeff Hamilton, these people were visionaries, and they, what they what they practice is now coming to light. And it's not just a little clique anymore. It's not just some middle class hippies. I know we get accused of that sometimes. It's actually across the board, and every young gardener I speak to, and older gardener that's coming into it wants to be organic. Yeah, I agree. Do you know, we've had nearly a quarter of a million listens to our podcast since this Brilliant. time last year. Now, that's a huge number of dedicated organic gardeners or people who want to know how to garden organically. And they tune in and they share with us their organic beliefs. I'm really heartened and, and humbled by it. So I'd like to say thank you to all our lovely listeners. What you're doing is so valuable to the natural world. Every little insect, worm, bird or butterfly is loving what you can offer it. And I think you can never underestimate the power of individual action and how we can make a change right here in our own back gardens. Yeah, well said. And uh, you know what? I would like to thank everyone for listening to. And also, if you've got something to say to us, tell us. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear what you're up to. I mean, even photos about what you're getting up to. Please, it's an interactive. We're here to listen. Let's exchange information. This is what organic gardens do. Well, I've set up a new email account. And at the end of this podcast, I'll give you details of it. So, yes, if you've got anything you want to share with us, ping it over. Thanks, Chris. Have a lovely Christmas. It goes without saying. And we'll speak in the new year. Thanks, Sarah. Happy Christmas to you too. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Now, I want you to put on your hats, gloves and wellies as we're off on a farm walk. We're joining Fiona Taylor, Chief Executive of Garden Organic, as she chats to Helen Browning, Head of the Soil Association. Helen farms high up on the Ridgeway in the south of England, and I have to warn you, the wind is something fearsome. Hang on to your hats, and for the first ten minutes you may even have to lean into the wind to hear their words. Let's join them as Fiona asks Helen about her favourite animals, the pigs. We're standing in a field and our feet are on the most beautiful green clover and not a couple of metres there are, gosh, as a quick count, around 12 piglets, I would say, that have just finished feeding. And I'm standing here with Helen Browning, who is Chief Executive of the Soil Association and also author of a wonderful book called Pig. I don't know one pig from another, so I'd love to (laughs) hand over to you at this point to describe what we're looking at. Well, welcome. And yes, so here we have our herd of saddleback pigs, saddleback sows. They're crossed with a large white boar, so the piglets are all mostly white with a little bit of black on them in places. These piglets in front of us are about three weeks old. They all mix up as a gang and we keep them with the sows until they're about eight weeks old. So they're weaned much later than they would be if they were in an intensive indoor unit. The, the sow in front of me is a, is a beautiful black animal with a, with a sort of wonderful white stripe over her shoulders. I mean, she is an absolutely beautiful beast. She is. She's a classic saddleback. You know, they keep growing until they're three or four years old. They turn into some very big girls, but they're wonderful mothers. Uh, you can see how much milk she's producing. She's got a lovely even udder underneath. And uh, they will feed these piglets very happily um, until they're eight or ten weeks old, whereas uh, a lot of your modern sows would run out of steam. Uh, they would lose too much body condition and, uh, and not cope at all well particularly in these kind of outdoor conditions. But you can see just how content pigs are when they can get their noses into the soil and be digging away. This is perfect conditions for them. We've had a bit of rain, so the soil's nice and moist and they can actually start digging away, looking for the roots and the earthworms and all the things they like to find. I think that piglets are a bit like small children. You've just got to keep them occupied. (laughs) And as long as they've got a field full of clover and soil, they will happily dig away and keep themselves content and we'd never therefore have to cut their tails or their teeth or any of these kind of things because we don't get the problems of you know them getting aggressive with each other that you get if they're indoors. It is fundamentally an outdoor system you alluded to that so it 
would be just interesting to understand the difference between what I'm seeing here and actually perhaps what's happening in quite a lot of other pig farms up and down the country. Yes. So where organic is so unusual, I mean, it's unusual in, in many ways with pigs and with poultry. The animals are outside throughout their life. They, they come in just for a few days before slaughter. That's just so that we can weigh them and get them used to an indoor environment. If you compare that with the majority of pigs, they are on concrete all their lives. They may have some straw bedding, but the majority of pigs will spend most of their life in a relatively barren environment compared to this. You do have about 40% of the UK's sows are now outside, but they don't tend to move very often. So you often see quite sort of brown fields, bare fields with sows on them. It's much better for the sow welfare to be outside, but actually um, I'd like to see them moving across land as we do in an organic system. Pigs are such intelligent, amazing, curious animals that they deserve a good life. And that's what we try and deliver. Helen, in your book, you, you pretty much sit next to the pigs in their straw, in their huts. You know, you observe them really close hand. Do you think that year where you were gathering that information changed you and your relationship with the animals? I think it's always interesting when you really attach to animals. I mean, as a farmer, you you have to do the right thing by all your animals because I'm not working with them day in, day out like my staff are. I hadn't become overly attached to them as individuals. And I think what was really interesting was exploring that attachment and how that made me feel about sending those pigs off to slaughter at the end of the day. Um, It took me back, actually, to my very early days of farming, of developing the system here when I was much more hands-on and we did have far fewer of them and I got to know them far better. And all that kind of soul-searching I did about the relationship as a farmer you have with your animals, uh, the contract that you actually have with them, you know, why animals have allowed themselves to be domesticated, how we our responsibility for those animals, and to look that really square in the eye again. And I, I came out of that okay, actually. I, I felt what I felt 30 years ago when I first started doing this, that while people are eating meat, and I think that eating some meat eating is a good thing in terms of the role that animals play in our farming, in our countryside, regenerating soils, maintaining biodiversity, that I can look those animals in the eye and get to love them and still eat them. Which is great to discover that one hasn't got a heart of stone, isn't yeah. it? First of all, looking after the pigs in a marvellous way, but actually looking after the wider environment that you're in which you're farming and the wider natural benefits. Yes, I mean, all animals have a different kind of interaction with the, with the land. You know, your cattle are really important from the point of view of maintaining a variation in height of your grass wards, uh, you know, allowing insects to flourish and the dung beetles and all those kind of things. I think the pigs, actually, their particular benefit is the benefit it has for wildlife during the winter. I mean, you, you can already see the starling murmurations and the field here. And it, during the winter, this is a feeding spot because the, the pigs are turning over the soil. They're making available foodstuff for wild birds yes. that wouldn't be available if we didn't have the, that, that disturbance going dis- yes, on. Absolutely. Um, and of course, we're feeding the pigs and so we're feeding the birds too. It's, it's full of life up here in the winter when actually a lot of the rest of the farm is quieter. I think there is a real benefit to having pigs creating that opportunity for wildlife at the barren time of the year. What's amazing to me is, is how the fertility of all these different types of plants and dung and you know and even the bird life and the wildlife and everything that is contributing to the soil at the end of the day this cannot be richer this soil surely yes i mean i think what you're doing in an organic system you're building up the fertility in the soil and then you're sort of cashing in on that so it's kind of that lovely self-limiting system you know you only can reap what you sow um and uh, and the pigs are a part of that but so are the cattle and all the other things that happen on this lovely pasture and it does build the organic matter in the soil it builds the soil life the earthworm populations we're doing a lot of sampling on that at the moment we're doing our carbon footprinting and looking at all how much sequestration we're getting in soils so we're learning a lot about uh, what the benefits of what we have been doing but also exploring new techniques as well because you know there's this need to constantly learn and invent new ways forward to innovate
meat. Um, so with our cattle, for instance, we are using more herbal lays. We're, we're, we're mob stocking much more, so letting the grass grow much taller so you get more roots underneath the soil and then uh, grazing it intensively, quickly and moving on again. And uh, there's a lot of interest in that technique because it's thought to build up the soil carbon much more quickly. You know, there's so many different types of farming. It's hard to completely generalise, particularly around cropping systems. Um, but a lot of farmers have gone to these very almost monocultures, almost no rotation. It might be wheat, wheat, oilseed, rape, wheat, wheat, oilseed, rape, something terribly straightforward. You're just, you're just using one crop as a bit of a break. And all of them requiring very high levels of nitrogen uh, fertiliser, synthetic fertiliser, many sprays of pesticides and herbicides and fungicides uh, you know has worked quite well for them financially for quite a long time but I think farmers are increasingly recognizing that their soils have actually run out of steam so in a lot of our best arable land in the east of the country soil organic matter levels are down to one one and a half percent and uh, it's costing farmers a lot more to till the ground because it takes a lot more fuel when you when that ground is so solid and so hard and so compacted and the chemistry is not working very well for them either you know the sprays aren't working so yes many different arable systems many of them have been very destructive of soil fertility uh, but I think the light is starting to come into farmers eyes I think I think farmers are starting to realize that uh, yeah they're going to have need to do something about it even if they're not going to go all the way and go organic themselves we're looking in the other direction at a field of hundreds of cows, it seems. <laughs> well, this is the Starvel herd, and they are moving across all of this grassland that you can see be- between here and the very top of the downs. Um, they only milk once a day, and that means we have a very high butterfat and protein milk, a very rich milk. And they, every time they're milked, they move on to, they move on to a new chunk of grassland. So today they're on this wonderful herbal lay. You can see the chicory uh, waving in the breeze, but there's uh, lots of other stuff in there. There's about 10 or 15 different sorts of clover. There's lucerne, there's sanfoin, there's uh, salad burnet, uh, sheep's parsley, plantain. All naturally occurring? Well, it's, they've been sown, but then it'll just keep regenerating itself all the time. Okay. And, uh, I didn't know what a herbal lay was. Explain that to me. So a herbal lay is a very dark diverse mixture of grasses, herbs and clovers and the cattle absolutely love them. They milk very well on them and they their health, you can see how shiny they are, how good their coats look and I'm sure that's down to these really diverse herbal um, and clover lays. They, I mean they really do look magnificent. I want to stroke them. How young are they? What, what sort of age are they? They're a real mixture of ages. So some of them will only be, they'll be in their first season of milking so they'll be about two and a half years old now some of them will be eight or ten years old this is quite a young herd because it's the new herd it's the herd we established uh, just three years ago they're, they're mostly british Frisians, but some of them are crossed with the montbelliard bull and now uh, my daughter and uh, son-in-law who are running this herd are also crossing them to swedish reds so they're chomping away very happily on their herbal lay yes <laughs> and, and the further backdrop that we're looking at is um, an amazing blue sky with lovely clouds sort of skidding across the landscape and we're looking across to the chalk downs is that right? Yes yes so we're on chalk here Um, all this soil is over chalk but the top of the downs that goes up to about 800 feet and it's an amazing soil up there it's a very black peaty soil very high organic matter soil ought to be all of it in grassland um, because it's uh, actually a climate sin to plough it so you get these wonderful big vistas on the downland here and the cattle as I say graze all around the hill as well as on the the flatter land. Yeah, sunlight's hitting over over the top and and the, the different shades of green around are, are beautiful and it, there's a wonderful bit in your book Helen where you say that we sometimes are conditioned to think a landscape is beautiful when in fact if that beauty is potentially only skin deep and I, I was very drawn to that part of your writing and I wonder if you could expand a little bit on what you mean by that. 
I think there's two things to explore there. One is that we've uh, grown up with the landscape looking the way it does. So people talk about the uplands, for instance, and they think that that is a barren landscape because that's the way they've always known it, that that's the way it ought to be. But of course, it wasn't always that way. And I think sometimes we have to have a bit of imagination as to what would be here if we weren't so actively farming all of it. Actually, you know, this downland would at one point have been more scrub and and trees. And maybe it's time to bring some of those trees back into this landscape, even though in our lifetime we haven't known it that way. And I think the second thing is, as we, you know, drive through the countryside or whiz through on the train, you look out of the window and you see this wonderful greenness and those kind of landscapes and people think it looks very beautiful. But actually, a lot of that land may well be in those monocrops, may well be heavily fertilised. It looks green, but it's green because it's green through synthetic nitrogen, not through the clover and all the things that will sustain our, our food system without having to use all these chemicals. I think a lot of people are not quite thinking through what that landscape is telling them. There's a sort of need to retrain the eye, isn't there? Retrain the eye. And actually, sometimes you need to physically get into it. You need to understand what's going on. You need to look down uh, a lot deeper than just that kind of superficial glance across something that looks rather, you know, sweeping hill and green. Actually, what's really going on in the soil uh, can be very different to that first impression. It's a really interesting conversation to be had around gardens, isn't it? And around greening of lawns and and making sure that your sward is, you know, weed-free and gloriously green and actually the truth behind that is is perhaps it's not so green after all. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I'm no gardener but I um, have started over the last few years just allowing our lawns to rewild themselves and creating little paths through them rather than mowing the whole thing and it's been a joy actually because the insect life has come back and it's actually a much more interesting place to be and watch and feel and smell and yet we've had this kind of, you know, both in farming and possibly in gardening too, um, Um, This sense that it's all about tidiness and neatness and uh, farmers getting cross because they're not allowed to cut the hedges. Actually, we don't want to cut the hedges all the time. We want to let them flourish and let the bird life enjoy them. And and, uh, so we've got this this mindset about a tidy countryside. uh, That's not great for nature. And, you know, we saw a murmuration of starling as we arrived. We've got, uh, I can't quite see what's coming. I haven't got my glasses on. I'm not quite sure. There's There's some gulls going across over there, yeah. Yes. And I know from having visited the farm previously that you've got all five birds of prey. Is that right? Yes. Well, we have uh, have, um, uh, red kites, buzzards, sparrowhawks, kestrels, uh, the occasional hobby. We've got lots of different owls barn owls little owls uh, and I think when you have all those birds of prey you're it's an indicator that you have lots of food for them because they're eating all the things that you know um, and so it's a kind of good indicator that the whole system the whole pyramid is working well so the field that we're we're standing in is enclosed by the most wonderful hedgerows that are immensely tall and also the trees have been allowed to to grow up out of the hedgerows so we've got some tree cover as well Helen, you don't cut your hedgerows, is that, is that right? We very rarely cut our hedges. When I came back to the farm here 35 years ago, all the hedges were about three foot tall and everything was slashed every autumn with a with flail mower. And we've just let them on the whole go. Occasionally you have to trim when you're refencing or, you know, if you've got a blind corner or something. And, uh, and the amount of everything in those hedges, the amount of carbon you're sequestering in those hedges is manifoldly, hugely more. And the nesting opportunity for birds, because the hedges get thicker and wider and the brambles come out, up outside to protect from all the magpies and things. And then you've got all this amazing food for the, the birds over the winter. So I'm a big fan, actually, of letting hedgerows go. We want to be planting a lot more hedgerows because I think sometimes it's good to have young hedgerows as well as older, more mature ones. But I think rather than cutting these down to make them feel young, uh, we just need to be planting some more so that we've got that variation across the farm. So it's a sort of roll call of the heroes of the hedgerow, if you like, but you you need to give me some some guidance. I'm sure we've got some crab apples in there. I'm sure we've got some rowan in there. Yes, obviously a lot of hawthorn and blackthorn. And then you can see over there, you've got some ash trees, some willow trees as well, uh, some oaks coming up. Yes, crab apple. We have a lot of damsons in our hedges. It's wonderful um, to think that, you know, people, whenever they were planting these hedges, probably 150 years 
ago or more were plumbing in all that fruit because uh, as, as we've let the hedges mature you've suddenly got this bounty for us as well as for the wildlife and lots of people are foraging and we actually take a lot of apples out of the hedges each year for uh, juice during the winter so hedges are a bit like uh, you know a bit like agroforestry they're producing lots of food for us and for wildlife um, that will just kind of grow itself year on year without much management once it gets away. I'm really interested to see what happens around foraging in an urban setting because as air pollution starts to perhaps reduce due to you know more use of electric vehicles that's that's the hope you know there's a a motorway near me with a a a really mature stand of crab apple trees they've all shed on on the on Mm. on on the ground and you know i love crab apple jelly you know but there's no way i would go and and harvest them because they're right next to the road and and i'm wondering if actually we will see in in not too distant future time where it's actually completely realistic to go and forage in an urban setting wouldn't that be wonderful Mm. So the field that we're, we're standing in is an agroforestry field where we have rows of different types of trees and bushes, which we'll describe more in a minute. This is a new project. So Helen, tell us a little bit about it. Uh, well, this is Barnfield. It's about 10 acres. What we have here is almost like a sort of expanded orchard, but with some sense of a, a permaculture system or a forest garden system where you've got the understory as well as the trees. You've got an understory of soft fruits. It's a, a really diverse approach. One of the challenges with organic orchards as I'm sure you know, is that disease can be a problem. And so the idea of actually mixing it all up and giving the trees a lot more space, that's all in the hope that it will stop disease spread, allowing us to grow really healthy fruit without having to worry about those kind of things. That's fascinating. And there's obviously a lot of air movement around and amongst. So you're not looking for a sort of tree canopy, tree cover. How would you see this developing? So they're in rows. You'll see it's on a lovely curved design. So it's aesthetically quite pleasing, yes, it's actually. Um, people often come down here and say, oh my God, I want to come do our poetry readings here and things. <laughs> um, so yes, we want to see some grassland between and as you say, keeping that air movement. Um, this is designed to be compatible with poultry systems. So you can imagine even now, actually, how much chickens would enjoy being able to get under the the young trees and and, and shrubs. Um, But as these mature in the next three or four years, it'll be an amazing habitat for chickens who are woodland birds and uh, really like to range where there's plenty of cover. That makes them feel so much safer. Tell us what type of trees and bushes are all growing here. Give us give us the detail. Well, we've got a, a real mixture. So we've got some nuts. We've got uh, walnuts and almonds. And people go, oh, almonds. What are you doing growing almonds? And I guess it's a little bit of our sort of hedge against climate change. You know, it will be interesting to, to think about if we've got to have some of this warming, um, what might grow well in a warmer climate? If they don't fruit, that's great because maybe we're not getting quite so much climate change. And then we've got a real mixture of fruits of um, damsons, plums, cherries, quince, apples, pears, lots of different sorts of each of those. Uh, apricots, again, you know, something that doesn't necessarily grow that well in the UK at the moment, might do in the future. Yes, that seems quite a brave choice. I, I'm imagining <laughs> a nasty frost could see to those. Yes, I think they will. I mean, it's amazing if you look at the trees, how w- well they look. They're flourishing, as are the almonds. Um, but whether we'll get fruit, um, uh, we will wait and see. At least they're sequestering carbon and providing a nice habitat for our chickens when they get here. I mean, the whole thing is presumably a terrific carbon sink. Yes. I mean, I think agroforestry is a really good way of, uh, of still growing lots of food, probably even more food, because these kind of systems will grow an awful lot more than uh, we would have done if we just had a few cattle or sheep out here or had a field of wheat, but also sequestering carbon and giving more home for wildlife. Um, you know, there's, there's getting more trees into our farming systems makes such a lot of sense from every perspective. Um, when we walked in, I'm pretty sure I saw some blackberry bushes. Yeah, black currants um, and red currants and gooseberries, uh, raspberries, taberries, lots of soft fruit. Um, and we're already harvesting that for juices and for puddings. Um, so the soft fruit is a way of getting a bit of cash flow through a little bit faster. But also we all loved our, we love our raspberries, don't we? <laughs> you talked a little bit a moment ago about trees and and one of your chapters in your book 
is titled In Praise of Trees. It's made me really wonder, when did we stop valuing trees as a major source of crop and why? It's such an interesting question. I mean, we've ended up ripping out so many of our orchards in the UK, which is a tragedy um, in so many ways. And we're importing 85% of the fruit that we eat in Britain uh, when we could be growing so much of it. And that was all about economics. And then at the same time, our woodland cover is one of the lowest in, in Europe. Obviously, government has set out these you know, very uh, high ambitions for planting more trees. But actually, unless we get farmers more confident with tree management, I mean, you're never taught about trees in farmer school, uh, even today. And so um, woodland management, creating more woodland and taking some income from woodland is something uh, that a lot of farmers have got to get more comfortable with. And, and there is there are real opportunities there. But agroforestry, you know, just bringing trees in as a crop or even if they're for timber, actually mix, mixing them up with your farming is a great way for farmers to start to build their confidence uh, with trees and to see perennial crops and trees as a bigger, much bigger part of our food future. I mean, you think of nuts, nut crops are amazing. The yield per acre can be very high and they're actually really carbon positive because the, the trees are actually sequestering carbon while producing something for us to eat. I feel that we should be exploring um, tree crops a lot, lot more and managing our woodlands better. There's so much opportunity in all of that, but farmers at the moment still treat, see trees as a bit threatening and a bit alien. And perhaps a bit slow growing. And a bit slow growing. <laughs> That's a very good point, a very pragmatically good point. They are slow growing. There's a big cash flow. You know, this system here between planting it and getting any significant harvest will probably be eight or ten years. And all that time you've got to nurture the trees and, and move them in the right direction. So if you're starting from scratch, you do need some help to get you over that, um, that cash flow lag. And you do have to have both uh, a vision and some sense of your uh, you know what the land over that longer time frame when you're planting woodlands you're not planting them for you you're planting them for your children or even for your grandchildren and so I think you know we need to stand back and have that bigger longer term multi-generational perspective of what our land needs to provide for us and our successors. Yes, that's very interesting. I, in my garden, I inherited a filibert tree. And the, the nuts, um, well, I have to say the squirrels usually outwit me for the nuts. But, but underneath it, I've planted a couple of gooseberries and a couple of currants. I was a bit late, but I put some nasturtiums in, hoping they would romp away as well and that I could potentially harvest the seeds um, and pickle them. But there you've got, in, in an area that's actually sort of two metres square, you, you've got this, this little system going on and but here we're standing in front of um, a very unusual bush that I'd never heard of or never seen before and I wonder if you could explain that to us. So this is sea buckthorn. Um, and Almost spiky. It very, is, yeah, yeah sort of bushy spiky has a, an amazingly vivid yellow orange berry um, which is very high in antioxidants and vitamin c and uh, all sorts of things. Uh, we have planted a lot of this, both in this field and in the bigger agroforestry site uh, just over there. Yet yeah, a lot of interest in this plant uh, because it has uh, potentially sort of health-promoting properties. It's also, in fact, in our, some of our sausages, in our organic sausages, we use uh, dried sea buckthorn as a, a sort of preservative, as an antioxidant. So I think there's a lot of potential in this as a plant. Uh, we're about to start making some sea buckthorn gin. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have very big quantities of it at the moment, um, and we will see what we end up doing with it. But it's um, uh, it seems to like it here. It's growing well, and think it's a crop for the future. Uh, and that's what it's all about, isn't it? And 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 you you mentioned that it would work well for chickens. You you've also mentioned that you've got a bigger scheme on the farm, a, a much bigger field uh, dedicated to agroforestry. We established that about four or five years ago as well. So the rows of trees are straight rows rather than these lovely curves, and they are most mostly peri pears interspersed with willow and alder or sometimes with sea buckthorn. What we've done through that planting is create these lovely paddocks for the cattle which allow us to do this mob stocking um, so that the cattle can have a paddock each day. It's about a hectare per paddock properly. So it's no mow effectively. So it's no mow, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And, and we, this would be too, the one we're on now? Would so this, we, Would you need to mow this? Yes, we, we can make hay out here okay. and because we haven't got the chickens here yet, we are making hay in here 
here in the summer. And what's so interesting about this field too, in just the last five years, we're already starting to see things like orchids coming back into this. So how quickly nature responds when you just give it a bit more space and time. See, that's so encouraging. And uh, that change in management and the fact that there hasn't been too much fertility coming onto the site in between the tree rows has allowed um, other plants to, to take over a bit. I, I'm really inspired by it. I, I, when I saw it in the summer, um, I went home and um, I said to my husband, like, you know, I, I, I'd like a field. Do you think we can do, you know, can we, can we go and buy a field? Can we, you know, can we have our own agroforestry project? And he said, why don't you just look out of the window? <laughs> and I looked out of the window in the garden and it just really captured my imagination. And that was when I indeed planted those. The underneath the yeah. trees. Yeah, it yeah. really made me think. And all I need now is some chickens. Yes. <laughs> And you don't have to have very many. You can have a lot of eggs and a lot of fun with just three or four chickens. Yes. And when will the chickens come? Well, when I get my act together, basically. We had chickens down here in the first year, but we did have a fox and we think a predator, bird predator problem. I thought it was the red kites. I'm still, they're still telling me it wasn't. So I'm hoping in the next year or two we'll start to introduce chickens here. So do you, you're going to have to go and hunt the eggs. I mean, how does that work? <laughs> They'll have their houses. <laughs> they're hopefully when you train them, they lay their, ha- their <laughs> eggs in the houses before they go out in the morning is the plan otherwise yes it will be a fun egg hunt and maybe that's a new thing yes. too you know the Parvin hotel guests can come and hunt your eggs before you go home for breakfast <laughs> yes exactly before or after the sea buckthorn gin exactly. yes, quite. yes as you can see there's always more ideas than there are there is capacity to fulfill them all here indeed it's been incredibly inspiring to walk around your farm today what's your hope for the future Well, I hope that the values as well as the practices of organic farming and gardening will become the norm. We talk about organic for all. You know, we now know how much of our ill health is due to our our poor diet. You know, if we start to grow things well, that sort of link between the health of soil, the health of plants, the health of farm animals, the health of us. You know, that whole interconnected story is one that I think people are is starting to resonate with people. But we should be so proud of what our organic forebears, the pioneers, all of us have actually achieved with holding this kind of arc of knowledge through a time where, you know, it was all about the chemistry. It was all about the domination of our earth. We do have a wonderful gang of people who can infuse and help the next generation do this stuff even better than we've been able to do it. So I'm really excited about the future for organic because there is just no time to lose. We have a huge revolution or a very rapid evolution to make in the next few years um, if we're going to be able to, to meet the challenges of climate change and nature depletion and human health and animal welfare, all these things. But also what you said earlier in the day about the more we put in to our land, to our soil the more we give back to nature and that's the gift that we're hoping that we can leave for future generations so thank you so much for having us it's been a huge pleasure really lovely to spend the morning with you and if you want to get a copy of helen's book it's called quite simply pig and i found it a fascinating commentary on the issues facing farming today You can also learn more about the Soil Association and the excellent work they do for organic farmers from their website. And now it's time to open the podcast post bag. I'm joined by Chris, Anton and Hannah, who are all calling in from different parts of the country. Hi, guys. Hi, Sarah. Sarah. Hannah, over to you. So we've got some Christmas themed questions today. Now, the first question is from someone who's tried growing Brussels sprouts this year for the first time, but they haven't had much success. Some are covered in black spots and none of them are a nice tight shape. They look more like loose little cabbages. Can you help? So Anton, I think first it would be interesting to understand what you think the black spots might be. Okay, yeah. The the black spots, they can be caused by a couple of fungal diseases. Um, Brussels sprouts are quite susceptible to fungal disease. But first, let's have a think about how we can prevent that happening. 
Um, some varieties are actually a lot more resistant to fungal diseases than others. So have a look when you're choosing your varieties. You want to look for ones which are resistant to black spot. The technical name is Alternaria black spot. And the other disease they get quite commonly is called ring spot as well. So if you look for varieties which have got some resistance to that. And then how you grow your sprouts is actually quite important as well. There's always the temptation to plant them too close together. Um, so make sure you space them out. They need to be at least two feet apart so that there's plenty of airflow around them. The other thing is to remove the sort of older lower leaves because they tend to sort of harbour diseases and sort of reduce the airflow around the plant. So just sort of have a tidy up of all, all your sort of older decaying leaves on the plants as well. And that will help. Chris, are you a sprout grower? I am. I, I mean, um, I grew some brilliant ones last year, last Christmas. I had them on Christmas Day. They did really well. I wasn't sure that was my skill or I just had a lucky year, to be honest with you. You do get sort of unfurling of the leaves. You use the the, um, the expression like small cabbages as a leaves unfurl. That could be an irrigation problem. They, they need to be kept moist around the roots. If you've got a very sandy soil and it gets dry, they might sort of open up a bit like that. So my advice is maybe get some compost around the base of them, make sure they don't dry out completely and that will stop. I think it's also important to say is um, brassicas can look a bit tired late summer don't panic i think when the fresher air comes pick them over ddd them get rid of the dead disease damaged material and as soon as it gets a bit cooler you tend to find them they pick up a bit so a little bit of irrigation make sure they don't dry out completely and just pick them over and let them get let them get into the fresh air and see how they do and would you still eat these sprouts oh definitely well, actually, I wouldn't. I'm in the sprout hating camp, to be honest, Anna, so I don't grow <laughs> Me too. <laughs> mate, 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 look, listen, like, mash them up with a chunk of butter. You can't beat a sprout, mate, I'll tell you. <laughs> well, I personally will be avoiding them. But I think you make a good point, Hannah. Yes, unless they are totally reduced by these black spots, I think they'll be fine to eat. I think all you have to do is peel off the outer leaves and then you get that nice green body of the sprout, which is perfectly edible. And I also think there's something here about the supermarket look, you know? I, I like to call it the supermarket supermodel. We know we're not all supermodels. And just the same with our fruit and veg. Often when you grow your own, it's, it's slightly imperfect. It's perfectly imperfect, to quote another supermarket. So, yes, it's definitely edible. It's an interesting point, isn't it? We are conditioned to see what our veg looks like by supermarkets. The carrots have all got to be equal and the sprouts have all got to look the same. People need to ease up, relax a little bit about it all, don't they? Don't you agree, Sarah? Yeah, they're grown for look. They're not grown for taste. And I always think if you produce something yourself, you're probably going to be more determined to try and eat it when you finish. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely Anton. <laughs> the most buckled vegetable in the world, if I've grown it, it's getting eaten, Anton. I tell you, this. you go to all that time and effort. Plus also, you know, a lot of veg is put in dry storage. Its nutrient content is going to be very low by the time it hits the shelves of the supermarket. Freshly picked veg is going to be full of nutrients. So it's not about what it looks like. Brilliant. Thank you. The next question is also on the theme of Christmas. So I'm going to ask each of you to choose a Christmas present from our sponsor, the Organic Gardening Catalogue. Now, this present is not for yourself, but it's to give someone else. So I want to know what you've chosen, who it's for and why you think they might like it. Anton, you can start us off with this one. So I'm going to get a Christmas present for my mum, who is 78, but she still does loads of work in the garden. She's not a veg grower, but she really likes a lot of colour. So I'm going to get her some surefire things, which I know will work. So I'll get some calendula and that will attract the bees. And I'll get some nigella. They've got a nice mix, which is called Persian jewels some nasturtiums as well particularly keen on getting some echinaceas as well because that really brings in the birds particularly finches later on in the season she does like watching the birds some linanthes that's a poached egg plant and all of those are really easy to save seeds from as well so i think that would be quite fun for her to have a go at doing that so those are all surefire things. I have to say that her garden's in Northumberland, so it's not the warmest of climates. But I think I'd also like to try something a little bit more adventurous. There's um, a plant called Tithonia, which has got these 
beautiful sort of bright orange petals on it, like a huge daisy. Um, it is actually a Mexican plant. I think that's probably pushing the limits of what would grow in Northumberland, but I think we'll, we'll have a go and see, see whether it works. And of course, with that, you're going to include a free voucher of your expertise. And Of course, yeah, I'll be, I'll be on Zoom or phone <laughs> regularly. <laughs> Okay, Sarah. Like Anton, I'm going to keep it in the family. Both my boys, by coincidence this year, have bought houses. Both of them are now faced with small town gardens and they have no gardening knowledge. So I'm going to get them the little booklet that you can get on the organic gardening catalogue called First Steps in Organic Gardening. This is a treat of a little publication because it not only explains in very simple terms the principles behind organic gardening, and I can hear them saying, oh, yeah, mum, but it's also got some easy to grow veg that they might like to start their hand at growing. So I'd like to think that it's going to inspire them. It's dirt cheap. It's less than three quid, I think. So it, they can each have a copy. In fact, it might go in their Christmas stockings because even though they're big grown up boys, they still have to have a Christmas stocking. Of course. I'm going to choose a book too, which is called The Tiny Tabletop Garden. Now, I'm going to give this to one of my friends who's recently moved house. They live in quite a small rented house in the middle of a city, but they're really keen to start gardening. And what I like about this book is that it's 35 projects for small spaces, either indoors or outdoors. So there's a really nice mix of edible projects, but also floral things that they can do within their own garden, including um, a really nice potted blueberry. So I'm hoping that that will inspire them to- Chris, how about you? Well, I'm going to go for the humble propagator, I think. And there's a selection of them in there, uh, the organic catalogue. But this to me, if I had £20 left in the world, this is where I'd spend it. I was looking at my allotment this year and uh, it's a big allotment. It's full of flowers, full of edibles and pretty much most of it, 90% of it was grown from seed. And a great deal of that seed came from a propagator. It's a very simple, effective little miniature greenhouse that you can start seeds and very effectively and I just think you know where a gardener gets involved where you become a gardener is that magic from seed to seedling to plant that process just brings you in and once you've done it once you'll be absolutely addicted to it so I think the first rule for any gardener is to get going is to get yourself a propagator and I'm going to buy that propagator for everyone okay for everyone you're on Chris Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll have to be writing a credit note. I can see it now. Oh, that's brilliant. Thank you, everyone. Well, thank you, guys. Have a wonderful, wonderful Christmas and happy holidays. And no doubt the January post bag is going to bring some surprises. Happy Christmas, everyone. Bye. Bye. Of course, the one present we forgot to mention is the gift of membership to Garden Organic. Why not treat the gardener in your life, or even yourself, to a year's membership? You'll get a welcome starter pack, a dedicated advice line to email your problems and queries to, and a magazine three times a year. But perhaps most importantly, you'll be supporting the work of the charity, helping us to spread the word about the natural way of gardening and growing. Just visit our website at gardenorganic.org.uk for details on how to buy a gift membership. You've got until December the 20th to get your order in. And if you want to contact Chris and I about the podcast, and we love hearing your views, then send us an email on podcast at gardenorganic.org.uk or tag us into your gardening updates. It's quite simple. We're at Garden Organic UK on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. That's at Garden Organic UK. Next month, we start the year as every good gardener should by exploring down into the soil. Until then, I hope you enjoy this special month. It may have the shortest and the darkest day, but I hope your holiday festivities also bring you light and fun. Thanks for listening and bye for now.